This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. First Bite sure does love some freebies, and I grew up loving some coupons. That's my kinfolk's way of saying coupons. I can't even say it correctly. (laughs) And so to start the new year off right, we wanted to do a little give back. So if you head on over to speechtherapypd.com and enter the code FIRSTBITE, not to be confused with the autocorrect of Frostbite, well, then you will find a fabulous $10 off coupon for an annual subscription. That will give you access to all of the one to three hour webinar courses, as well as all the First Byte pod courses for CEUs for an annual membership of only $79. But hey, do you want more? Don't you love that cheesy sales line? I love that cheesy sales line. Okay, well, if you do, you can use that same coupon, First Byte, and access all of the courses on speechtherapypd.com's website for a fabulous deal of $179 a year. Whoop, whoop. So don't forget, plug in the coupon First Bite when you check out at the speechtherapypd.com website. Happy listening, y'all. Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the all things peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels, and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP here. 
And I'm blushing a bit, not just because it's hot as all get out there in Columbia today, but also because our guest today is the one and only Dr. Elise Davis McFarlane, Ash's immediate past president and one of the most gracious and kind Southern women I know, although my accent may be slightly a bit thicker. (laughs) The topic of today falls in the functional and fun category, and we're talking all things ethics on this special Sunday night episode. I know, I know, ethics. I heard your sigh, Asha. I heard some of y'all sigh when I said that too. But folks, as I have said in the past, our national association has a purpose. It's more than just to take our money or our dues every December. Advocacy, education, functional resources, guidelines, and a code of ethics, they're all there for a purpose. Patient and consumer protection, clinical protection, clinical education, and clinical evolution. Let me explain by what I mean clinical evolution. If we stay stagnant, if we quit learning, if we assume, well, I've always practiced this way, well then friend, that mindset is failing you and your patients. They deserve more and you deserve more. So to quote this fabulous book that I'm reading, cough, cough, hint, hint, I totally think you should get this book, hit, hit, hit. I highly recommend that you read and go do, girl, wash your face, because we need to embrace the scariness that is change and embrace the scariness that is ethical dilemmas. And we have to embrace this head on. So we're going to troubleshoot now, right this very evening with an amazing mentor that is Dr. Elise. And we're going to begin with those first scary steps. We're going to face fears, grudges, concerns, or misunderstandings that you may have surrounding our code of ethics and that ethics topic in general. And if you're a super nerd, kind of sort of like me, then ethics is your jam and you're going to love learning this. So sit back because tonight's guest is fabulous. I first met Dr. Elise a few years ago when helping to plan Skish's 60th anniversary convention and she was our featured speaker. It was the perfect combo. She spoke during our uh, our luncheon, so it was learning with laughter and key lamb pie, which kind of made for like the perfect combo. But what struck me the most was that this learned woman was genuinely as kind as she was as knowledgeable, and that's a really rare combination. So without further ado, here is Dr. Elise, and oh my stars, thank you so much for being here. So hi. <laughs> Hello, Michelle, and thank you so much for the invitation. Yay! I was so nervous to email you. I was like, okay, you can do this, Michelle. You can do this. And then, like, well, I was very pleased to get your email. And again, thanks so much for having me. Yes. Yay. Okay. All right. So, you have had like the dream career. I mean, to go from a Palmetto State clinician, and everybody thinks we're such a tiny little state, to being the immediate past president of ASHA, but to have touched so many lives along the way. Can you kind of tell us how all that transpired? (laughs) Well, actually, Michelle, I started out in North Carolina. I'm originally from North Carolina. and Yes, yes, yes. I got to South Carolina uh, by way of marriage. My husband is from here. But I started my career in North Carolina. Uh, I was a public school clinician. And actually... Back in the days when I actually did practice in a broom closet, they cleared out the janitor's closet and that (laughs) was my space. So you can imagine how long ago that was. But 
I started out as a pediatric SLP and did public schools and early intervention in people's homes and in clinics. And Head Start was a, a big part of my practice. And from there, I went to graduate school a couple of times and realized that what I really wanted to do was to teach speech language pathologists. So I had a couple of faculty positions and then um, ended up finally at the Medical University of South Carolina, where I developed and started a, um, a graduate communication sciences and disorders program. And so I've been involved in ASHA for, of course, all of my professional life. I've been on many different committees and boards, but my interest in ethics came about when I was on ASHA's ethics committee. I had a three-year stint on the committee and really came to realize how important ethical practice is in our profession and how, in some instances, it can be a little easy to lose, lose sight of what's important in terms of ethical practice. And the point that you made about if we continue to practice the way we always practiced without thinking about the ethical implications of what we're doing, we really can get in trouble. So that is why I'm so interested in ethics and really interested in helping people not uh, have to face ethical dilemmas. I feel like knowledge is the start. And I know with, was it the 2018 Code of Ethics update, or it was the clinical supervision, or one of the supervisors, right. one of the updates, you now have to maintain one hours of ethics for every 30 CEUs, correct? That's right. Starting in 2020, one hour of ethics is going to be required for the continuation of your certification. You're absolutely right. Yep. And... That to me, I actually enjoy sitting in in those classes because I feel that if I am given case examples in advance, then I can store it away so that when I'm in the moment, okay, well, I heard about this and this is advice given on what to do should this event arise. And so that's, that's my take on it. Knowledge is power that should be shared. So for what it's worth. Okay. Well, then let's just jump right into it. All right. And this was a topic that was actually inspired partly by you, by your talk when you spoke on literacy and language acquisition for those in low incomes. And I see this and have had this question posed by students over the years. So when working with patients that are in low income situations or poverty, often this is difficult for newer clinicians or those new to the world of early intervention. And I'm often asked, when do we need to ethically make a referral to DSS or Department of Social Services versus when is it more appropriate to reach out and attempt to have more social supports put in a home? Because poverty isn't a crime. Neglect and endangerment are. But I mean, let's be honest, most clinicians are middle income clinicians. We come from middle income homes. And we don't understand where that line in the sand is between, you know, poverty versus neglect. And how does that pertain to our ethical responsibilities? That's a really good question. And one of the things that is important is that when we are educating speech language pathologists, that they become aware, that we make them aware, help them become aware of the fact that a substantial number of children and families who receive 
early intervention services are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And our code of ethics requires that we provide culturally competent and evidence-based services if we have the knowledge and skills to address the communication, literacy, or cognitive issues that the client presents. That means that we are to come to our work with families living in poverty with an open mind about that family's capacity to benefit from the services that we provide. We should not come into a situation taking for granted that because people have less income, that they are not going to be able to benefit from what we provide. On the other hand, our code of ethics does require that we use every resource, and this is what it says, every resource, including referral or interprofessional collaboration, to ensure that quality services are provided. And I think there are situations in which that requirement extends beyond our work with the child on communication goals. If we have valid reason to believe there's neglect or endangerment and that that child's welfare is threatened, then we have a duty to respond. Now, I think we have to be careful and very sure that a referral is our only recourse because a report to an external agency or law enforcement could result in extreme actions that may not, in the end, be in the child's or the family's best interest. You know, I think we've all heard about the difficult stories about children being removed from their homes, uh, ending up in foster care situations that turn out to be worse than the situations that they were removed from. For example, if you feel that a child you're working with, let's say, is undernourished, is it because of the parent's neglect or is it because there's a lack of money at the end of the month for grocery shopping? And perhaps you're sharing a flyer from a neighborhood church about a church's food bank where mom can get food without cost might be a better option than a referral to an agency. I really think that we have to use our judgment and consider all the available options as a way of making the very best decision for that family. I have actually had that conversation ongoing with a little friend that I'm currently working with. Mm -hmm. The family is low income and mom just left a domestic abuse situation, which is near and dear to my heart for a litany of reasons. And they are currently surviving off of the child's SSI income benefits. And mom was not aware that even though they receive SSI income, they were also eligible under our state guidelines, they were also eligible for WIC, Women, Infant, Children, as well. And that was able to put additional foods in their home. And one factor, folks, if you're out there doing feeding and swallowing therapy, a lot of our children that get SNAP benefits or WIC, when they chronologically turn 12 months of age, they are the nutritionist at WIC automatically rolls them over to a toddler formula. And for some of our children that were preemies, micro preemies that have G-tubes, that may not be the right call. And you're going to need to work with them and their GI or their pediatrician because that it has different caloric metabolic needs. So when you're educating your families, if you have concerns about malnourishment, those are all conversations that in some states where the speech pathologist acts as the case manager, you're allowed to more freely have that conversation. 
If you are not the case manager, then you may need to have that conversation with the early interventionist or the case manager or even with the pediatrician. Yes, absolutely. I see that happen a lot when the kids hit 12 months. Mm, Good point. That's a tough case, but I'm telling you what, that little boy, he's finally got some chunky thighs on him. (laughs) It's just taken us a minute to get there. (laughs) You know, I think the point that you make is a really good one, especially when we're working in families' homes in early intervention. We have to be very knowledgeable about what resources are available to these families. And not only that, we also need to have relationships with people in agencies, folk who can give us information and people who can help us make decisions. Because we can be an excellent resource for parents, not only in terms of what it is we're doing with their child in terms of their developmental or communication goals, but also just helping families improve their lives and doing things, providing information for them that really helps them enrich their environments and their lives. So I think you make a really good point there. I mean, we can't ask them to buy into that home exercise plan and actually follow through if they're worried about like paying the power bill this month. Oh, squirrel, folks out there that are listening, a lot of times your early interventionists and your case managers know community supports to assist with bill pays for power and for water, the two primaries. So, I mean, it won't assist with cable or luxury items like that, but the water and the power. And if the child has special needs, sometimes those associations like the Down Syndrome Society or the Cerebral Palsy Association, sometimes they have financial assistance as well. So just to offer some community support options. But like you said, poverty's not a crime. Okay, so any other suggestions for discerning that and when to make assistance? I don't think so. One of the things that I think is important too is relationships. And when I was doing early intervention, one of the things that I found was that sometimes mothers in very many situations, I was working in single parent families, but that mothers in some instances tended to be kind of isolated didn't have relationships beyond the home, were dealing with a child who had special needs. You know, there were times in which I thought that mothers could really have benefited from being more involved in the community, in a church, getting out to the community center for whatever is available there. So there have been times that I've really encouraged moms to try to develop relationships beyond just the one that she has with her child or with members of the family but to try to do things that would be good for her own self-esteem and for her own enjoyment, because I think that allows her to bring more to this child that we're working with. That makes me think of postpartum. We don't give credit to the postpartum depression and the PTSD that a lot of these moms or guardians go through. And that's something that I have had to encourage families and sometimes um, spouses, mates, to get their partner assistance or have, you know, you go in the homes and the grandma, the wise woman is in the room. Mm -hmm. If you strike up a conversation with the wise woman, the matriarch of the family, sometimes they can instill encouragement in younger generations. I'm thinking of my grandma sitting in the back corner, just nodding her head. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But we do have to make that consideration. And we are, I feel we do need to relay that over to the pediatrician as well. You're right. And the other thing is we need to educate students about 
signs and symptoms. Because, you know, you go into a home, you're so busy interviewing parents and observing the child and interacting with the child. And we do need to be aware of the fact that, first of all, in most instances, 99.9% of the time, parents expect to have a healthy baby, boy or girl. And having a child that has severe or even moderate medical issues or developmental delays is very unexpected. And so there's a real process, we know, because we're mature in this profession, but there's a real process that parents can go through in terms of mourning the fact that this is not the perfect child that they had anticipated, learning about the child, learning how to care for the child, on and on. And it can be very, very difficult. And that's something that we really need to take into consideration and be aware of as we're interacting with parents. And postpartum depression, you know, I've seen it kind of handed off by a spouse or by other people in the family as, oh, she's just still tired from the birth of the baby. You know, six months later, she's still Mm. sleeping, you know, 20 hours out of 24 and nobody's paying much attention. So you're right. There are a lot of different things that we need to be aware of and prepared to try to help families identify and and know what to do about. I read an article that postpartum can exist for, it's considered postpartum for up to two years afterwards. And a significant chunk of it is actually chemically driven by the amount of loss in the mother's body from like their metabolic system is just shot because their body at a chemical fundamental level is drained, giving everything to the tiny human. I mean, I like to remind Goose, he's the reason I sneeze pee and bears the reason I giggle fart. But I mean, like I had really horrible pregnancies and a lot of reconstructive surgeries afterwards, but at a cellular level, it changes them. Mm -hmm. So building off the last question, clinician safety. Now, recently, our team had a situation where we arrived to do therapy, graduate clinician in tow, and the patient's mother proceeded to share that there was an altercation with the father of her child and his new girlfriend. The mother gestured to the broken bat on the floor lying adjacent to us and um, shared that the father was now being looked for by the police to serve a bench warrant. And once he was located, there would be additional charges, including criminal domestic violence and a restraining order. And that would have been the second time. So the EI team, myself, the occupational therapist, and the early interventionist all expressed concern for their safety going into this home. There had been suspected drug use on the father's part, never with the mother, but on the father's part. So offering immediate support, my intern placed them in contact with emergency shelter for domestic violence victims here in the Midlands of South Carolina. It's called Sister Care. I highly recommend everybody out there find out who in your community does emergency shelter. Our medical team, our EIOT, SLP, we all agreed to hold off until some measures were put in place. So all services had to be put on hold for, it was five weeks that we put them on hold. And we just recently resumed them after she had found a new safe place to reside. We notified the pediatrician. She understood and was supportive of our recommendations. But that's just one example of ever so many. And the situations, they keep popping up frequently. So... What can clinicians do? What should we ethically do? 
Well, I think, you know, obviously what you did was exactly what you should have done. Because when we go back to the rules of ethics, the code, and it says that we are to do whatever is necessary, essentially, to make sure that our clients' welfare, whether it's in terms of communication and what we're doing with them, or whatever we find in the home, our responsibility as professionals is to try to ensure safety and a completion of whatever it is that needs to be done to ensure that the child is safe. So, you know, with early intervention services, obviously they can't continue in a situation in which a stable, supportive environment doesn't exist. And obviously, I mean, that was very obviously not a stable, supportive environment that that you walked into. One of the things that I come to realize is that very often in situations like the one that you described, the focus is on the adults and their actions that bring about these situations, the domestic violence, uh, the interaction between the, the mom and the, and the child's father and the girlfriend. And that's especially the case when violence is involved. But when we focus on the children who live in those situations or who are exposed to the conflict between the adults and their environment, what we find is that these children may be traumatized. And that's a relatively new area of research and publication in our discipline of speech-language pathology and early intervention. So that even after the children are removed from an unsafe environment and are in a safer space, they may suffer from the effects of trauma. So in the situation that you described, once you resume early intervention services, you may find that in addition to the communication disorder or medical or developmental issues, that you were dealing with initially, you may now have to confront the residual effects of the trauma that the child and even the parent may be experiencing. So that's an area that I think we need to be very sensitive about and very very aware of. I'll give you an example of a situation that I experienced early in my career. I was seeing a 36-month-old little girl who had moderately delayed language development and a mild phonological disorder. Her name was Annie. I'll call her Annie. Her father was president of a local bank, and the family was very well off financially. For some reason, the parents didn't want Annie to be seen at the university clinic, so I agreed to come in twice a week to work with her. And they were what, you know, we might refer to as kind of the model family, very active in the community, supporters of deserving philanthropic efforts, and actually very nice, very nice people. Annie was a really sweet child, but her progress was very uneven. And I began to question why she was not making the progress that I thought she was capable of. When I asked her mom if she was aware of anything that might be affecting Annie's progress, I really didn't get any answers to my questions. So after I'd been working with her for about two months, her father was arrested for domestic violence. Oh, my Lord. He had a history of assaulting his wife. And when her father found out about it, he convinced his daughter and his mother to press charges. So, of course, Annie's father had to move out of the house. And Annie began to exhibit symptoms of selective mutism, which only increased over the next six weeks. She finally became completely mute. I didn't know it then. But in retrospect, this was probably the result of the trauma of being exposed to the domestic violence she had observed in her home over a period of time. So I think that when we have situations like the one you describe and with Annie's family, we have to be aware that the children we work with might require more than just adjustment of their physical safety. 
because there can be consequences, obviously, above and beyond having a safe space. So in terms of the ethics of the situation, you did exactly what you were supposed to do, what you needed to do, and maybe even what that mother could not have done for herself. The domestic abuse cases, those are, I mean, I'm a domestic abuse survivor, so I'm like hypervigilant, hypersensitive to it. And we had another case pop up where a CF, a former intern of mine, she's in her CF and she's doing home health therapy. She went into the homes and she said, Michelle, I think I'm being recorded. And I was like, wait, what? And she goes, she'd already previously described there was a lot of tension in the house. The child had delayed language with no known etiology, but beautiful home. Mom was always dressed to the nines, makeup done, but there was cameras all over the house. And I was like, well, you know, maybe nicer neighborhood. Maybe they're worried about break-ins. And she was like, no, they're in the house. I was like, okay. And then she noticed that when dad was home, the red lights were not on. When dad was gone, the red lights were on. Hmm. And I said, well, that's, in my humble opinion, a safety issue for you. Because you have to be notified when you're being filmed. And, you know, you need to speak to your clinical supervisor about it. So she spoke with her supervisor and her supervisor ended up calling the family and the family assured them, you know, they would not film her and, you know, without her consent and so forth and whatnot. Then lo and behold, that's exactly what was going on. It was abuse. And the supervisor reaching out, that was able to get the ball rolling and, you know, father no longer lives in the home. But those are red flags. I mean, horrifying red flags. But I think the term is voyeurism when you're being filmed without consent or without (laughs) knowledge. Probably probably so. so. Yeah. I was going to say, I know there's a fancy multisyllabic word for it. Now, me spitting it out is a different question. but (laughs) And, you know, the red flags are, are very often things that we would never think of. But we really do, you know, we have to be aware, especially when we're in people's homes aware of what's going on around us. And that's why I like to spend, when I was doing early intervention, I liked to spend a lot of time with the parents, really getting to know them, finding out what's important to them, trying to get information about their lifestyles and how they interact with their children. I mean, all of that information is important, but it also gives you a sense of what this family is like and what this family is all about. That becomes very important in terms of the work that we do. I have found that if you have a gut feeling something's not Mm -hmm. right. It is not. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Now, one that pops up periodically here, and, you know, we we didn't talk about it beforehand, but is drug abuse. Drug abuse and suspected drug use in the home. And for me, sometimes when you go into apartment complexes, that it may not be the actual apartment that you're going Mm -hmm. into that you can smell narcotics in Mm -hmm. use, but another apartment in the building. But, you know, older, older brick homes, especially unfortunately here in South Carolina, the government housing, they're not well ventilated. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we just had that case um, a couple months ago where two men lost their lives in one of the government housings here in the state. I remember reading about that. Poor ventilation. Yep. I've done therapy right over there. It's been a couple of years, but that's a patient safety issue. If you suspect drug use or drug sales, that's another thing that you have to ethically report. 
and follow up with the pediatrician because sometimes it's, you know, it may not be the parent. It may be somebody else in the home, but those are things that we do need to convey. And, and we are mandated reporters. That is true. That is true. So not reporting something that you are pretty sure is illegal or unsafe or unhealthy is not within keeping, is not within the code of ethics, is we are not Mm -hmm. maintaining our responsibility in terms of the code of ethics. So that becomes very, very important. Uh, It's always the what to do afterwards. And that for me, like if I make a report and have to put the patient on hold and then come back. Sometimes I will go back. I have had situations where I've made the report, placed a child on hold, and then there have been threats against me for making reports. And I can't go back, but, you know, we recommend that the child be seen at a clinic or, you know, we offer suggestions then. But you know, I can't ethically go back into a home when somebody's made a threat against my life. That would not be safe. <laughs> that is very true. That's true. And and there have only been maybe four times that I felt like I needed to make a report to an agency in which the child might have been removed or the family might have had to have been relocated or something. But in three of those four times, I told the mother that I felt the need to make a report and why. And in two instances, they were very unhappy with me. The other two, the mother was very understanding. The mothers were very understanding. But, you know, I I always felt in four of the five cases, one case, I absolutely did not say anything because I knew that it was a very dangerous situation. And I probably could have ended up, as you said, that has happened with you a couple of times with threats. Uh, these were some, you know, pretty uh, dangerous folk, I thought. But to the extent that I could communicate with parents, I've always wanted to do that because I think that's important in terms of the relationship and the respect that I have for the family and, and the trust that I felt had been developed over a period of time. I had one family I went through one time to go do a session and I'd been going into the home for, you know, several months to see the youngest. And I came in one time and the great, great uncle, bless his heart, he had to be in his 80s. I walked in and it definitely smelled of marijuana in the home. I said, now, darling, that's illegal. He said, yeah, but it sure does make watching these babies a whole lot easier. I said, darling, (laughs) you know, I'm a mandated reporter. He said, little lady, you do what you got to do. And then I was like, but I mean, he was in his 80s. And they left the tiny humans with him. And I was like, so, I mean, I reported and, you know, the state did what the state did. And they, uh, I went right back the next week. And uh, they were like, it's all right, honey. We understand you're just doing your job. Oh, my goodness. I cannot make this stuff up. Bless his heart, that little girl. I also pulled a cockroach out of her trach one time. And I'm not making that up either. But, I mean, we talk about some cranial nerve suppression. But, like. Wow. This is just a day in the life of an early interventionist. I know. I know. I know. I remember. I remember those days. Believe me. Yeah. But I mean, that little man, he had, he didn't have but a wisp of hair on his head. I mean, (laughs) bless him. It was watching these little ones a lot easier. Yes. And he did with his big old thick Southern drawl. And I was like, all right, darling. Oh my goodness. One day, one day we'll have to write a book because this is the things. That would certainly be a possibility because the 
EI stories are quite something. You know, it's so funny to me when I get a report from a outpatient swallow study and they give these recommendations for what I should do in the home setting. I mean, I got to laugh because my first thought is, darling, you never have been. never been. <laughs> you only knew. Yeah. yeah. Like, real right, here. yeah. I know. I know. But I kind of feel like if you're going to work in a hospital and if you're going to do swallow studies and make recommendations, you at least have to spend a week of your life doing home health. And then you can go back to your (laughs) hospital. But until then, come walk with me for a week. Yeah, there Uh, are some stories to be told. No doubt about that. Yeah. Uh, Oh, my stars. All right. Last question of the day. Last clinical case study. All right. So a few months ago, and I honestly think it was, I think it was last summer right now. But a few months ago, the Ashalita had an article about the coaching model or approach to early intervention and that we should be working towards that as clinicians. Uh, While I was reading it, I thought, well, I couldn't help but noticing that the cases utilized in the article all tend to be children that had mild to moderate delays in speech. And it struck me that the medically fragile or those with significant delays were not discussed. That's my bread and butter. Those are the children that I work with. And these children that have significant delays and impairments, their home health team is comprehensive. There's numerous nurses, there's numerous caregivers, and in short, there's a large quantity of stakeholders. So my question is, how should we go about incorporating them ethically into the coaching model and sessions specifically for that home exercise program? <laughs> I mean, like I'm old school. I was taught seek to understand first. Right. That coaching model, it was all us telling the families and the caregivers what to do. And that struck me as so odd because when I read that, those nurses A nurse that's with the child for 40 hours a week, they know that baby better than Mm -hmm. I. That's very true. How do we go about doing that? How do we ethically implement coaching? Well, I think that's kind of a more old school approach, I think, to uh, how we get parents involved. And I think that what we know now, what research has shown us, and what I think a lot of folk have learned just through their experience, is that you have to bring the parents along with the child. And the very first and most important thing is to find out what it is that the parents want for the child. That, I think, is where, in fact, when I was doing EI, that was where I spent a lot of time asking the parents about the child. You know, what does Annie do in this situation? What is feeding time like? What is her sleep like? All of the questions that I thought would be important in terms of finding out what it is that the parent wants for the child. And then explaining, based on that, explaining what it is that we might be able to do and how we would do it. You know, a lot of times early intervention is envisioned as the intervention specialist, the speech-language pathologist, sitting on the floor playing with the child. You know, parents refer to it as, you know, you're playing with the child. And they may think, this is, you know, the clinician's opportunity to play with the child. And they're up and off doing something else. Well, no. Laundry. We, I've often yes. heard moms this, say, you're here. I can get laundry exactly. done. That, for some, it's their respite. It's their opportunity, especially with these uh, highly involved children. It's their few minutes to be able to do something that they feel like they haven't been able to do or need to do 
when someone else is with the child, when they don't have to be right there with the child. So one of the things I always want to do, wanted to do was explain to the parents how children learn through play and the fact that what looks like play to you may be called play, but this is the way the child learns. And so that's what makes it important. And this is how you can be involved in helping your child to learn. The other thing is, I think we have to focus on daily activities that the parent does in terms of caring for the child. And so, you know, I'm not sure that there, in some instances, there needs to be so much sitting on the floor, quote, playing in play, uh, in quotes, as there does, interacting with the parents around activities of daily living, eating and toothbrushing and all of the things that the parent has to do with the child and incorporating that into whatever the developmental or communication goals are. And teaching parents how to weave these communication intervention strategies into the daily routines and activities of the children. But I see that as coaching, not having the parents sit there and watch or having the parents go off to do something else while, you know, I'm working with the child. And the other part is really, you know, motivating parents to want to interact with the child in order to make sure that the goals are met. For example, when I asked parents, what is it that you want for your child? What do you want your child to be able to do? Then, you know, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to say what I'm working with the child on or now what I want you to do with the child is going to help that child be able to do what it is you say you want him to do. And so really using what the parents tell me their goals are, incorporating that or letting those become my goals for the child or our goals for the child, and really trying to incorporate the parents or incorporating the parents as much as possible in terms of what we're doing and how we're doing it and making parents the child's teacher impressing upon them that they are. You know, when we look at cultural differences, and there are situations in which parents don't see themselves as a child's teacher. They see themselves as the person who's supposed to provide nurture, a safe home environment, but not so much teach the child. Now we see other parents, like when I travel and I'm in an airport, it's nothing to see, not at all uncommon, to see parents sitting over in a corner with a child waiting for their flight to be called, reading to the child and asking the child stories about the book that they're reading, teaching, actually teaching. Well, those are parents who perceive that as their role. There are other parents who perceive their role as more a nurturer and a protector and not a, quote, teacher, that the teachers are in schools or they're the people that come into the house to work with with the child in terms of early intervention goals. So, you know, a lot of what I think needs to be done is to educate parents about how they are their children's teacher and what are some of the things that we do in order to teach and how you use these teachable moments to help the child be able to achieve the goals that the parents say they want the child to be able to master. And when the parents are not there, y'all, get the nurses involved in that exactly. Teaching. And because our home health nurses, our home health CNAs, LPNs, RNs, they're there to help medically manage that child, but also to be part of that team that's within their practice, within their roles right then and there. 
I'm thinking for the most medically fragile children, when you were talking about how you teach the parents how to teach them language, I teach the parents how to feed Mm -hmm. the child. It is not my responsibility to feed the child when I go into their homes. Because if I do it, then fantastic. Kid ate for Miss Michelle, or as some of them call me Shell, but I'm failing that child because it's my job to teach the compensatory strategies or to the family or, you know, let's observe, watch, how are they doing on this stage nipple? All right, well, then let's change it out to this stage nipple. And then this is why, this is the sign and symptom that I saw that would tell me, all right, today they can't handle the higher flow rate nipple. Today, because of that sign, and explain in detail, we should try the slower flow nipple. But if we're just going in and treating the child, then we're not setting that child truly up for success. We have to educate caregivers, loved ones, whoever is responsible for primary caregiving. Now, one thing that I have seen, I have a hard time in some settings getting daycare workers to buy in because we're going into work with one child, but they may have a classroom of like 15 other kids. So the case in point earlier today, I was at a daycare trying to work with, you know, the cutest little tiny human um, ever, blonde haired, blue eyes. I mean, just absolutely looks like Shirley Temple and her little classmate who, lo and behold, also received speech therapy, came right over and we're, you know, singing, okay, we did it. Okay. And in the middle of my, okay, her classmate coughed in my (laughs) mouth, (laughs) like in my mouth. Like, all I could do was think, I cannot germex intraoral cavity, but like, there are the perils of early intervention. Oh, yeah. Oh, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, you know, subsequently, the other little kid that was sitting right next to me just, you know, had one giant blowout. And I was like, this is, this is, this is a long day. And I'm just starting. It's just starting. It's still morning. I know. I know. It was only 10, 15 in the morning. I was like, all right, cool. It's going to be a good day. But, you know, in that particular instant, they had a floating daycare teacher mm-hmm. in the room. They did not have the lead teacher. And so I had a floater who just kind of goes around when, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, census is high. And she had no idea what we were working on and how I had already trained the head teacher and the regular assistant teacher on how to use sign language and how to use a slower rhythm and rate of speech to allow for processing speed. And, you know, the floater, bless her, she was kind, she was enthusiastic, she busted out a CD that was the fastest paced children's music I have ever (laughs) heard in my life. And my tiny human and the other little tiny human that's in speech therapy are both like, (laughs) and I was like, okay. I'm going to interject and go enough with the music. And she goes, oh, but the kids are liking it. And I'm thinking, did you just see the whole classroom just escalate like 400 degrees? But you know, um, yes, yes. And, you know, there are times in which there's not much you can do. <laughs> you just have to kind of go with the flow. Uh, and that, that, that's a good example of that. But, you know, you said that you want to try to involve the OT and the PT. They're not uh, the nurse. They're not sitting there watching, you know, co-treatment is wonderful. And there have been times when I've definitely invited them, come on, let's do this together. And 
that can work because in most instances, they'd rather be doing something rather than sitting and watching. But, you know, the co-treatment opportunities are great, not only for the child, but for the parent uh, to be able to see how we work together and the difference that it makes in getting the parent involved also. The OT that I work closely with, we had a over-the-phone co-treatment today because we're trying to figure out, is the child in moral reflux or was the child having a seizure? And my gut said seizure, but mom's like, no, this is just his reflex, his moral reflux being integrated in. Mr. Paul told me all about it. So I called my friend, Mr. Paul, and I let mama take a video for carryover. That's part of this mama's home exercise plan. And she does videos of me working with her child so she can practice it throughout the week. And it helps her and it helps the um, the little one CNA. Oh my gosh, this most amazing, amazing guardian and sent the video to the Mr. Paul. And he goes, Oh no, that is definitely a seizure. And I was like, mm, my gut was right, but follow mm-hmm. the gut. But he was able to add in his sage advice. So that a way CNA and guardian could jump into action for an extreme example, you know, stop a seizure, but from a feeding perspective, give me guidance on how we should hold utensils. Give me guidance on what prompts I should offer on the arm to allow more independence with self-feed. Those factors are huge. So when we're doing coaching, we also need to be on the receiving end of that as well. Oh, yes, most definitely. And to be able to get that kind of input from colleagues uh, from the different professions is really invaluable. It really is and very important. Okay, so we have enough time to ask some questions. But before we go, is there any other words of wisdom? If you could go back and tell yourself when you are first starting out and worried about ethical dilemmas or ethical questions, are there any resources, reference, or guidance that you want to give those that are just starting out? Well, you know, let me just talk a little bit about the, the underpinnings of our code of ethics. Because, you know, the code is about five pages long, but there are, yeah, there are five principles that really underpin the code of ethics. And let me just talk about those for a minute because, you know, the five are pretty easy to remember. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, their influence on what we do or how we use them. The first principle is autonomy. And of course, that refers to self-determination. And it also includes, you know, veracity, truth-telling, promise-keeping, disclosure and informed consent, and confidentiality. The next principle is beneficence, and that refers to, of course, compassion and kindness that benefit others. Another is malfeasance. You know, it's the same as the doctor's oath of first do no harm. It means not harming or bringing harm to others. The fourth is justice, refers to acting out of fairness for individuals, and then dignity, preserving and enhancing a person's self-worth and well-being. And when I think about ethical behavior or ethical practice, I think if we can keep in mind autonomy, benevolence, nonfeasance, justice, and dignity, we're going to be all right. Because if we are cognizant of those five areas and we are treating people within the context of those areas, we're going to be okay. As long as we're preserving dignity, acting in a just manner, not bringing harm to anyone, being compassionate and kind, and allowing people self-determination, keeping our promises and confidentiality, we're going to be okay in terms of our practice. 
It's when we violate those principles that we get ourselves into an ethical dilemma or get ourselves in trouble in terms of violating ethics. My oldest has just learned the golden Mm. rule. When I think of our code of ethics, that's what I think of is the golden rule. Right. I mean, and Goose is so excited that he can say that to me. And he's like, Mama, you need to do the golden rule. And I'm like, no, you need to pick your dirty clothes up and put them in the laundry hamper. So like, golden rule does not apply. But you know, it's six. He's trying real hard. I might be raising a future lawyer, but. Well, you're right. And that's what all of this kind of boils down to. And that is doing unto others that you would have them do unto you. The other thing that we need to keep in mind, and sometimes I I hear people talk about morals and ethics, and what's the difference? And as long as I'm morally correct, aren't I ethically correct? Well, morals are personal values and beliefs, and morals do influence our ethical behavior. But ethics are professional values and philosophies, and that can be a little bit different than morals. One influences the other, but they're certainly not necessarily the same. And we as practitioners need to be very clear about that, that our ethics are our professional values and the philosophies that underpin those values. Mm. That's beautifully stated. I don't even have any (laughs) self-deprecating, you know, smart aleck joke to come back with. (laughs) That's my shtick. (laughs) Well, I just have to tell you, thank you for coming. And thank you for coming on. And I mean... Can I let the cat out of the bag and share that you're going to be doing a whole series on ethics with us? Well, yes, you may. You may. I'm excited about that opportunity. We're going to do a series of maybe six or seven podcasts on ethics. And uh, we're going to look at ethics in school practice and in private practice, healthcare and medical practice, uh, research, and even interprofessional uh, relationships and practice. So I'm excited about that. And thanks so much for mentioning it. Yay. Okay. So that's coming out later this beginning of the the fall. fall. Yes. We'll be working on it over the uh, summer and hopefully they'll all be available in the fall. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay. Yay. All right. Well, then everybody stay tuned because I'll make sure to let y'all know when that's coming. In the meantime, uh, real quick, before we switch to questions, I'm going to do a shameless plug for a course I'll be giving in a month on Friday. July 19th in glorious Greenville, South Carolina. McCullough Therapeutic Solutions is hosting a six-hour pediatric dysphagia ASHA CEU course that I'll be presenting. And we're going to jump right into central pattern generators, or as I like to call them, my reason for why I do not utilize chewy tubes and vibrating sticks, as well as an evaluation for kiddos with unique multiple disabilities, why we refer to certain professionals and functional treatment options. So visit www.mtskids.com backslash continuing hyphen education for more information and to register. Also, friendly reminder, we will not be having our regular Tuesday night at 8 p.m. course this coming week on July 2nd, as I will be celebrating the 4th of July with a goose, a bear, and that oh-so-fine Mr. Dawson of mine at the beach. So happy Independence Day. Be safe. Dr. Elise, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. And if you don't mind, just hold the line one second so I can switch it over to questions. All right. Thanks, Michelle. Thank you. 
Hey, Michelle here. Did you know that First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, is partnered up with feedingmatters.org? That's right. Our pod courses and webinars can be found on the feedingmatters.org learning center. Also, be sure to mark your calendars for two days of evidence-based education on pediatric feeding disorders, the entirely virtual 2020 International Pediatric Feeding Disorders Conference. That's right. On January 24th through 25th, 2020, join pediatric feeding leading experts for intermediate and advanced level sessions, no matter your location. For more information, visit IP fdc.org. One more time. That's ipfdc.org. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies.